Hi, my name is Kevin McDonald, and I'm declaring my independence. Independence from what? Why, negative thoughts and energy, of course. Chief among them, hate, division, and fear. You see, I know that we're all one, and together we can solve any problem, save our planet and each other. Please, join me as we come together as one and choose a better way to be. So now, let's begin with my independence report. episode of my independence report my name is kevin mcdonald and uh we're here today it's uh let's see it's a beautiful wednesday afternoon here in seattle and also in houston texas where our guest is for, hailing from that's where she has her business set up and where uh, she lives and where she writes books from as well and her name is julie connor now there is a middle name in there that I cannot pronounce to save my life. We tried and tried. So, so Julie, would you like to give, first of all, welcome to the podcast. And would you like to give everybody a, a glimpse at your middle name, please? Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me on the show today. My middle name is Genaloni. It's, it's really easy and for me, but I know other people see all those vowels and kind of freak out, but it is easy if you just sound it out. If you're an oldster like me and you had phonetics in school as opposed to sight reading, all you have to do is just sound out every one of those letters and it comes out fine. G and L O and C I can't get my my tongue you just were there. you were there. You were there. <laughs> so I assume that Connor is your married name. That's correct. A very a very nice man he is, I'm sure. And uh, go ahead. Um, I stuck with my maiden name, Gentiloni, for many, many, many years. But then when I adopted my son, I thought it would be better to, for us all to have the same last name. So I started using Connor. And all those years I was resisting using my ex-husband's name. I thought, oh, it'd be so much easier to be Connor, not Gentiloni. But then I found out no one does it right either, Connor. It's Connor's like the ex-tennis player, or O'Connor, or Connor with an E, you know, so it's it's also got its own set of problems. Not as bad as Gentiloni, but it's still hard to get people to do Connor right. Gentiloni. Hey, what do you know? I think I did it. There it is. You did it. See, I can do it phonetically if you say it first, but I can't have you going around uh, saying it first, and then I get to say it. Gentiloni. Gentiloni. Okay. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Julie Gentiloni. Julie Gentiloni Connor, and she is a author. She is also a publicist. But before I wanted to go there, that's what she's doing today. I'm intrigued by what she did. Well, it was a a bit of a a job that she did for a long time, longer than some of you were alive. Um, And she was a diplomat for 33 years uh, for these fine United States of America. And uh, so, Julie, what what countries did you get a chance to live in as a diplomat? Well, I had nine postings in seven different countries. So I went back to two of the countries I'd served in once and then had a lot of years in between and then went back. So although it was the same country in both cases, those two countries have changed quite a bit in the intervening years. So nine overseas postings. Now, are you allowed to say which countries those are or would you prefer not to? No, sure. Absolutely. Uh, My biggest stretch of time was in Latin America, five different countries in Latin America because I'm fluent in Spanish. Also, it was convenient for me at that time to have the ability to have help with my son when he was small because I worked very long and intense days. But I also had two postings in Asia, one in Indonesia and one in Malaysia, and two postings in, in Israel. So I did really, I worked on uh, multilateral affairs too, which is like UN agencies. I was the office director in the State Department for the office that handles about more than 30 multilateral organizations. So I covered the whole world a lot over those 33 years and a lot of different areas like women's rights and nuclear nonproliferation. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your service. Excuse me, because I do know that uh, in Latin America, and you're right, that that is a sea of change all the time. And uh, and also in in some of the Asia com- countries, and then also goodness knows in uh, um, 
in uh, Israel, they have got their share of problems with with bombings and with uh, unrest and and lots of issues there too. So when you, you mentioned that you worked a lot of long hours, the perception by a lot of people is that diplomats do nothing but go out and have nice dinners and 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 wave to you know dignitaries and and that kind of thing. It's not really like that though, is it? No, it's not. I'd like to assure all American citizens that you are getting your dollar's worth of work out of your diplomats. We're a very small poor and we're always stretched thin. There's never enough resources, it seems, for our jobs. Um, just to give you an example, uh, the, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we all of a sudden had to staff a whole bunch of new countries, but Congress didn't give us additional budget or staffing to open up new embassies and staff those new embassies. So it had to be carved out of the existing embassies that were around. So a lot of us, myself included, ended up doing two or sometimes even three jobs because we didn't have the personnel to cover everything that had to be covered. So the thing is people say, oh, well, you know, go to all these receptions and parties and you do, I did. But please understand, we're not there to have a good time. We're working. So I would work a full day, 10, 12 hours, and then have to go out to a reception, let's say, and stand on my feet for a couple or three hours and do my job, which is interviewing people, talking to people, making connections for the embassy. So you put that all together and, you know, you'd be working 12, 14 hours a day every day. It's and the reception is fun when you're young and it's all new, but it gets old. It gets old. I can only imagine because, and especially, you know, in, in, in some of the, in some of the countries that, that you were in, um, that the, just getting to and from your office can be dangerous at times, can't it? Oh, that's true. I was in Colombia twice working in the narcotics area and in oh, narcotics boy. area. So in my second tour there, I was the head of the embassy section that deals with narcotics issues. And I had an armored car. And I had 24-hour protection because I was considered a high-risk uh, person. And nothing ever happened. I was very lucky. Uh, but still, it can be a very dangerous job. And since the end of World War II, just to give you again an idea, more ambassadors have been killed working in the line of duty than have generals. So we're a much smaller force, and yet more of our people get killed. Um, we all know the risks when we take the job and we take them willingly, at least I did. Uh, I loved my job and I loved having the honor of representing the United States overseas. Now, but, when, you have, when you have protection like that, uh, is that Secret Service or is that military? Neither. So the ambassador gets the protection from the diplomatic security service, which is a part of the State Department. But everybody else, we're mainly uh, handled by local contractors. So in my case, in the armored car with me was a local, a Colombian, who was my bodyguard, and then a Colombian driver also. So they were both local people who the embassy hired to do the protective service. The ambassador does have American officers with him at all times, but not the staff. You know, it's interesting. Way back when, in 1980, um, I was at a hotel I worked at the Doubletree Plaza Suites in Seattle, and uh, I was I was one of the waiters in the restaurant. And suddenly, there was a guy in a dark suit standing fairly close to me, and he had this uh, this thing in his ear, and he was communicating back and forth to other folks. and And that was Secret Service because Ronald Reagan was coming to speak at the at the hotel. There had to be there had to have been a dozen of these guys in and around just making sure that everybody was taken care of. So that's when we talk about protection, that's what we're caught talking about. But you had, you had a, a Colombian driver and a Colombian that were, and that were your protection. And that, that's not a whole lot of protection, by the way. Oh, they were wonderful. They were wonderful. Give them full credit. I always, you know, back particularly, let's say earlier in the nineties when Carlos, Escobar was running around and blowing up things in Colombia. And it was very dangerous, not just for Americans, but for Colombians, it was extremely dangerous. It became kind of a trope. If you had a movie, for example, and they wanted to show that someone was a really bad guy, they would just tell you that he was a Colombian. 
And we all knew, oh, bad, horrible, criminal. But I was working with judges and policemen who were putting their lives on the line day after day after day to try to keep drugs out of the United States. You know, because we are the reason they are, people are having these issues. We buy their drugs and we can't escape that. And we buy, and on the other end of the supply chain, the judges and the policemen get assassinated. So that was the people I was working with, and I have nothing but respect for them. That's a, now that would be a really tough job, being because the Colombian cartels were very powerful at the time, as I recall. Yes, they were, and they specifically targeted. For example, if one of them had a case and they knew who the judge was, the judge knew that not only was he at risk or she, but their mother, their father, their children, their cousins, their the whole family was at risk. And the cartels did not hesitate to murder them. And and the family and that was their that was the way that they got in. They got the guys because you know a, a, a lot of these guys are are very brave men, and uh, they they would sacrifice their own life. But when you start talking about, well, I'm going to kill your wife, I'm going to kill your family, I'm going to kill your mother and your father, and and that sort of thing, that makes that gives you pause. It makes you think twice about uh, doing what you know to be right, but can also be extremely dangerous. So, gosh, you're right. I applaud there those guys too, and many, 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 many were were killed. That's correct. We did it. We, the U.S. government, did our best to try to help. It was one of the areas we supplied judges, armored vehicles. We gave them body armor. We gave their their off their security forces training. We did all of that to try to keep them alive. And the judicial system in Colombia actually created a system which they called uh, jueces sin rostros, that is, judges without faces. You would be in court, but you could not see the judge. The judge's face would be masked. So they were trying to keep the cartels from knowing exactly who the judges were in the cases. And it was an interesting effort, but, you know, it didn't always work. The cartels are very, very smart about getting the information they want. Well, when you've got the kind of money that they had, and by the way, the reason they had that kind of money is because we bought their product and we bought a lot of their product. And we're talking about cocaine and heroin and all those, all those bad things. And, and you got a lot of money. You can find out information from folks because um, not everybody has got a great uh, sense of duty. That's correct. Or in the case of Pablo Escobar, you can build your own jail. You know, he was arrested. He was, was put in jail, but it was his jail. He designed it to, to suit himself. <laughs> so he, he was a convicted felon, but he was kind of in charge from the inside. Correct. He ran and his business from the inside. And he could get and do whatever he chose to do at any time with whatever he had. That's right. He would have catered meals brought in, favorite oh, restaurants, everything. You know, you know, there's so much in. Have you ever thought about writing a book about that? Because there's so much in that world that that we as a population have no earthly idea of how difficult it was, how how dangerous it was for you and for others. And and as an example, um, I, Benghazi comes to mind as being a, a horrible. You know, four four of our our people were killed in that in that deal, and that that was from the. Um, diplomatic corps, right? Well, our ambassador was killed and some of his, his security people, yes. And unfortunately, Benghazi became politicized when it shouldn't have been. Yes. And allegations were made that, in my experience, were totally unfounded. An ambassador is the president's personal representative in the country in which he or she serves. And the ambassador is free to make his own choices, such as where he'll travel, who he'll talk to, who he'll meet with, and so forth. And in the case of Benghazi, our ambassador there was quite experienced. He knew the area. He felt comfortable there. And he decided to go to Benghazi. Now, it, was, it turned out to be an unfortunate decision, but it was his decision. And to try to say that somebody else should be held responsible for that is, besides the, person who, the persons who murdered him, is just not fair and not accurate. Well, and the big problem there, as I recall, was that he put himself into a position where he could not readily get help in a very quick uh, manner 
uh, because it, there was just wasn't anything available that to, 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 that would be that close to him to help him that quickly, right? Well, that's true. But again, I think uh, Americans' image is kind of focused or arranged by films where you see a shot of the embassy and there'll be a Marine standing at the front door. In fact, there's only a very few Marines, like six or 12, assigned to every embassy, and they only manage the interior security. That is the kind of, you might think of the last line of defense. Inside the embassy, they'll have a gate and they're behind that. Um, but they don't travel out with the ambassador. They aren't his security force outside of the embassy. And they're a very small contingent. So a problem with Benghazi, Benghazi was to fly in somebody to help him. The, the whole incident was over by the time they could have gotten anyone in. So exactly. it just was not possible. And no one expected it to develop the way it did so quickly and so fatally. It, it's a shame that then, and, but that again is part of the diplomat's life. And I, that's, that's why I think, you know, all in all, you guys are not given the credit that you should get for working on behalf of our country, because in many places, in many of these countries, you are the face of America. That's correct. And the other huge function, if Americans know anything about diplomats, it's probably because they've gotten in trouble overseas. And the embassy is there to help them, whether they get arrested and thrown in prison or lose their passport or get robbed or whatever. The American embassy tries to come to the aid of American citizens overseas. And we have staffing 24 hours a day in the form of a duty officer. So I, you know, everyone in the embassy stands duty. And if you get called, as I was many times on a Saturday night, to say an American's in trouble, then you have to get down to the embassy and render assistance. So that's a service to our citizens that we are proud to carry out. Why is it that you think, and I don't want to get, this isn't a political show, so I don't want to get the politics involved, but it seems to me like, as an example, the when the USSR fell and suddenly you had satellite countries, all these little countries that no longer were under control of the Soviet Union, because Russia became Russia and the, all these other countries became free. And a lot of them decided they wanted to uh, join NATO or they wanted to be independent. And so we had a lot more embassies to staff. Why is it, do you think they didn't give you any more money? Is it just, was that politics or was it they just, just escaped their, uh, their ideas? Um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there were a lot of our Congress people who said, the war's over, we've won. We don't need to spend more money on diplomacy which is exactly, I think, the wrong way to think. We needed more diplomacy, not less diplomacy. But the immediate thought was early 90s, let's slash the budget. Let's slash the budget of the military, let's slash the budget of the foreign service. And certainly there was no thought of increasing the budget, even though we had a huge need to increase our level of staffing and our budget. You know, it seems to me that if I were a congressman or a, a senator, the way I would look at it is, all right, we've got a bunch of countries that were under communist rule, and so therefore they were kind of not available to American citizens, and it was frowned upon to really go there because it was part of the USSR. But now these are free countries, and a lot of people would like to go visit them, and maybe their ancestral homeland or whatever, and so there's going to be more traffic to these countries, and we're going to need to have a presence there to protect them in case something goes badly for them. Is, is, would that be an incorrect idea to have? Well, in my opinion, it's absolutely correct, but in certain people's idea, it was, uh, we can handle everything back in Washington by telephone or by mail. We don't have to have a person on the ground who is actually representing us. So that was the attitude. Okay, so which one of them is going to get on an airplane from Washington to go to Belarus to go into a jail cell to talk to somebody, a U.S. citizen that got in trouble for drugs or something like that, which, which is what the embassy is trained to do. Correct. And, and to be as their liaison uh, between the country that they're in and, uh, and themselves. That's right. And to represent the United States in all of its many aspects so we have a political section that does bilateral political talking. We have an economic section that follows the economics of the country to find out, is this a good place to invest? Should our 
American businessmen come here and try to do business. We have our consular section, which is the one that handles passports and visas and citizens in trouble. And, and we have my section, which is public affairs, which is to go out among the people, help the universities, libraries, arrange exchanges like the Fulbright program and so forth, to try to have a real person-to-person -person connection with the citizens of these other countries. It'd be interesting to know who was the liaison in charge of McDonald's and Star and uh, and uh, uh, Starbucks because there had to be a bunch of uh, of those guys that would be interested in finding sites in those newly freed countries. Absolutely, and the the Commerce Department, the U.S. Department of Commerce, puts what they call foreign commercial officers. They're assigned to the embassy to help American businessmen make the connections they need so they can start up business in a foreign country. And then our economic section, which is State Department, reports on the business connect conditions within the countries. So yes, and by the way, I mentioned at the start that going to one country can be very different if you go with the span of time in between. And I'll just talk about Indonesia. I went to Indonesia way back at the, at the 1988 to 90, and it was, there was just no American presence that you could feel on the street. I went back a couple of years ago, and everywhere you go, there's McDonald's, there's Kentucky Fried Chicken, there's Pizza Hut. It's just amazing how the country has changed as far as having Western food and Western businesses prominently there on the street. Well, you know, it's actually a uh, a deep state plot to put McDonald's on every corner so that they'll be fat like us. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, uh, this was a little experience I had. I was in Paraguay. It was my second assignment. And I mean, I was way out in the middle of nowhere. And I pulled into a gas station to get some gas. And the attendant, was they were still, you know, at those times attending you when you came into a gas station. So he's <laughs> filling my tank and he's got his music going. And and it was Michael, Michael um, Jackson. And I thought, here I am doing my best to influence Paraguay. Paraguayans about the United States, but forget it. Michael Jackson is doing what needs to be done. He has convinced this young man in the middle of nowhere in Paraguay that American music is cool. And so he's going to be favorably disposed to the United States. And yes, indeed. And, and I hope he didn't learn how to wear his pants like so many <laughs> young kids do today. Well, <laughs> because, you know, it's, you know, wearing your pants around your ankles is not anyway uh, i i digress but i again uh, julie i want to thank you so much for your service over over the time now you what what motivated you and when was your career over what decided you to, to get out of the service was it just burnout and time or did you transition to something else well actually the foreign service is based on sort of what you can think of as the military model it's up or out you either get promoted up or you are very politely asked to retire so the normal career span is 20 years, and most people serve their 20 years, almost everybody. But if you get promoted beyond what they call the threshold into the senior foreign service, then your career extends. So I was lucky enough to be promoted into the senior foreign service. And so I had another 13 years. I served for a total of 33 years. But after 33 years, I was almost at the mandatory retirement age, which is 65. And I wasn't going to get another promotion, so it was time to be to retire. I'm just kind of curious. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense to me in a situation like the Foreign Service where you're in a foreign country. You have to learn all about your, the foreign country, which takes time and experience. You have to speak a different language, which takes time and experience. And uh, and so after 20 years, you've got all this experience and all this time in, and they say, okay, time for you to go because we got – it doesn't make a lot of sense to me if somebody wants to stay on that they would have a mandatory retirement. But that's just me. I, I, you know, if I were running a business, I wouldn't do it that way. Many, many foreign service officers agree with you. They don't think they should be forced to retire when they're at the, you might say, they're most capable, they're most trained, they're most a, um, they have the most ability to represent the United States. But again, Congress, in its wisdom, is very concerned about clientitis. They think if an officer serves in one country or just overseas for too many years, 
they start thinking like the people in that country or like foreigners as opposed to thinking like an American. So there's all kinds of requirements. We have to come home periodically in what's called home leave to reintroduce ourselves to what's happening in the U.S., to changes in the U.S. And we are... We are, we are not allowed to stay in one country as long as European diplomats are, for example. They might stay in a country for four or five years or even longer. We are not allowed to do that. We have to have our tour two years, three years, in some countries four years, and then move on. And by the way, I was just watching TV the other night and I noticed the Soviet, for, I'm sorry, the Russian foreign minister. It's the same guy for at least 20 or 30 years has had that job. They don't have a secretary of state that changes every two, three or four years. So imagine the depth of knowledge that this Russian foreign minister has about everything that's happened in the past as opposed to the new, brand new U.S. Secretary of State. I agree that I think we could get more value out of our trained diplomats by letting them serve longer. Well, think of the Rolodex he has. Now, by the way, I got I got a, a Rolodex for those of you who are a little younger, is a is a deck of uh, of cards that that uh, you <laughs> that have got addresses and names and telephone numbers of contacts and people you want to something along like that, uh, which is what used to be very common on desks because they, people would fill out cards and you'd put them on there and so you could find them and, and stuff. And the, and the bigger the Rolodex you had, the more experience you had, the more contacts you had. I, you know, it, it amazes me. I was in sales for most of my adult life and, and a sales guy that's got a lot of contacts and knows where, how to get stuff done is very, very valued in, in companies. So just try it. it, it I just, it's shocking to me that we throw, especially, I was just thinking about this, we're throwing in 20 years, we're throwing 40, 45-year-old people out of their job in the Foreign Service, and then they've got to come back to America and start another career when they're in their mid-40s. That seems hardly fair. Well, let me just correct one thing. We do have um, a 20-year career, but Diplomats don't come in at 20 years of age. I came in, I was 30 when I started, and I was the second youngest person in my entering class. Most diplomats have advanced degrees. They have had some work experience, and they have to have those qualifications to get into the Foreign Service because it's a very, very rigorous entrance process. And I don't think I'm exaggerating to say we have the hardest cadre of officers to get into. You really have to work, want to get into the into the foreign service, and you have to work at it. It takes years to get there. Now, the the one the one aspect that that I do think I know something about, but I'd like your expertise on this, is that um, the ambassador of a particular country is an appoint a presidential appointment, uh, correct? correct? Correct. So, so you worked, I'm sure, in your career with lots of diplomats, lots of folks that were political appointees some were i'm sure better than others depending upon the country you were at and the time that they were there were there some that were clearly uh it was payback for something that they'd done elsewhere and so they became they got to become a the diplomat of a particular country or something absolutely it's um regular topic for discussion by the american foreign service association about political ambassadors Many of them, their only qualification is that they were big donors to a presidential candidate or president. And this is both parties. It's not one party or the other party, although the number of political appointees went way up under the, the last president we had compared to previous presidents, whether Republican or Democrat. But many times, you know, I served under some political ambassadors um, who were quite good. And I served under some political ambassadors who were quite bad. And by the way, I can say the same thing about career ambassadors too. So it's not one or the other, but in general, career ambassadors know what the job is and know how to do it and know who to call in Washington. They've had all the training. Whereas a political ambassador will be, in one case I served under an ambassador whose previous life was as a um, 
a salesman or a developer of malls. Uh, he was a wonderful man. I, I loved him dearly, but he didn't have any diplomatic experience whatsoever and so forth. So, you know. Can't, I, can't that be in the wrong situation? I imagine that could be a very dangerous thing to have happen. If you got a guy who doesn't know how to add, and the, plus the other thing is that, that they're getting this political appointment and they're going, I'm going to be an ambassador and I get to just kind of uh, hang around and not do much. And then they get there and the job is like too hard. It's a very difficult job. Do they ever regret it? Oh, yes, absolutely. I know some political ambassadors who just want to be ambassador and want to be called the honorable for the rest of their life, which they are but who really are not interested in, in working hard. And they will spend half of their time back home in the U.S. instead of at their, at their, in the, at their post. So, yeah, sure. So, so they get, I suppose that's, that would be true. They get, to, they get to decide their own schedule, so they get to decide when to come back and how often they're there, I would imagine. Are there guidelines as far as you need to be on post a certain amount of time? There are guidelines, but... Who's going to fire them? <laughs> and the president's the one who put them there. So, so, and so he, and generally speaking, that means that he has some sort of a personal relationship with the president of the United States. So I suppose you don't want to piss that guy off. Exactly. So it's, it's, you know, it's, isn't it amazing when you start digging deep into how our world really works, that it's different than what you had a, thought it might and it had hoped that it would? Well, in this sense, the United States is very different from almost every other country in the world. Our European allies, most countries in the world do not have political appointees heading up their missions. They are career services. And we in the American Foreign Service Association, all of us believe that it should be the same for the United States. But it's such an ingrained system that if you get to be president, you get to reward your supporters, your campaign supporters with ambassadorships that nobody is willing to, to break that mold. That's a, that is so interesting. So, you know, I mean, you, and, and of course the plum ones would be like France or England or, or perhaps Germany or Spain or some of those, but, but uh, the one, the, so the career guys end up with like Colombia and Brazil and, and, and places that, that the uh, appointee would rather not go. So it's so so how do how do they reward just out of curiosity, just dawn on me. If you've got all the plum spots going to appointees and you've got these hardworking career diplomats that end up in Colombia and Brazil and other places like that, do how do they get rewarded? Do they ever get the cushy, wonderful spot like in England? Rarely. Very rarely. So that that's a travesty unto itself, isn't it? Well, believe me, a lot of Foreign Service officers complain about this because they rightly feel that their career is truncated by not being able to move into an ambassadorship because that position is being filled by somebody who is not qualified to fill it. And by the way, um, understand that the ambassador's number two is going to be a career officer, and that career officer's job among other things, is to keep the ambassador out of trouble. And I mean, from little things to big things, uh, and some ambassadors come in and think they can use the embassy's budget for whatever reason, for however wish they, they, they want. You know, I want new curtains in the residence, so embassy, you pay for that. Or I want to have a huge party for my friends. Um, serves no purpose for the U.S. government, but it's a party for my friends. U.S. government, I want you to pay for that. And the the... Number two in the embassy has the has the um, difficult job of going to the ambassador and saying, Mr. Ambassador or Ms. Ambassador, we can't do that. It's against the law. And that, that creates a lot of problems. There would be a lot of tension between boss and subordinate. It's like, wait a minute, I'm the boss. You have to do what I say. No, that's wrong. The, the boss is actually the U.S. government. And by the way, Holly says, super interesting interview. Thanks so much. And uh, you're welcome, Holly. It's, it's, this, is, this is really is a fascinating topic that, that I could talk to you all day in regards to the, the diplomatic corps. Because I, 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 I tell you, you guys have done and are doing uh, tremendous work 
especially it just has come to light that it's a second in command as generally speaking is the guy who gets dumped on the most in in some cases well has a hard job has a hard job for when he works under a political ambassador now um again in the last administration it was about 40 percent of our ambassadors were political appointees so that means 60 percent that high that high yes and um, how are there... the historical levels are about one third are career are political and two thirds are, are career. But again, as you said, Kevin, you're absolutely right. The political appointees don't want to go to Asuncion, Paraguay, where I lived for three years. They want to go to Paris or London or some very attractive Athens, you know, wherever they want to go to some place they've heard of before, and that they, <laughs> they think would be fun to be the ambassador to that country. You know, it'd be it'd be really embarrassing if somebody if you get offered an ambassadorship and you got to go find a map to go see where where it is. Unfortunately, I think that happens. <laughs> I would not be a bit surprised. I now, if it's forty percent uh, um, political appointees, when the president uh, goes out of office, are they automatically replaced, or do they stay, or do they quit? How how does that work? They are asked to submit their resignation. And then it's up to the incoming administration whether to accept or not accept that resignation. Usually they let an ambassador fill out his term and a normal term would be three years, but not always. It depends on the person. And for really outstanding ambassadors, they just let them stay on at post because they're, they're good and they're doing their job. And so and, some of the, yeah. You know, let's take, um, even though they're U.S. government or they've been involved in the government, let's take a senator, for example. A senator sometimes makes an excellent ambassador because he's got the skills. He knows about talking to people. He knows how to represent the United States. He understands he's going to have to go and stand up, stand up at all these receptions and events and, and be nice and talk to people he doesn't know and so forth. He has the skills to represent the United States. So they can be a very good ambassador. I, I want to give credit to the, to the political appointees who do a good job. And a lot of times, former government officials do make good ambassadors, but not always. It depends. You know, it very much depends. And, uh, and you, some people that you think would be excellent ambassadors don't do such a good job. You know, it strikes me that that if if you were a somebody that was a mega donor, as an as an example, and gave a particular candidate a lot of money, that means that that means that you either inherited that money, or you went out and earned it, and you have a company behind you, and there's so you're a CEO or an owner CEO of a company, and that has done very well. I would think that would make a lousy ambassador, because you can't people are not at your beck and call. You can't you can't say go do this and go do that. And you're the president, but I'm the, the ambassador and I got the U S behind me. So you have to do this. It doesn't work that way. Does it? You have to be, you have to be more of a sales guy. That's right. Um, one of long ago before my first agency, the United States information agency was absorbed into the state department. There was a political appointee who was appointed to head the agency. Now this is in Washington. His name was Charles Wick. And he was a businessman and he came in and he immediately, and he was appointed by President Reagan, he immediately wanted to fire a lot of people and he, of career officers. He was told, you can't do that. And he was just, what, what do you mean? I'm the boss, I can do what I want. Well, no, you can't. But with that kind of attitude, a lot of people's careers get ruined, it's true. Very competent officers get marginalized or get put in jobs where, they can't really perform and, and they get black marks against their names for political reasons. So some of the, some of the really good ones that are willing to stand up to power and say, no, sir, that, that would just not be a very good idea to do. They can get marginalized and sent to the mailroom, so to speak. And that can be the end of their career. So what advantage is it to them to speak their mind and to do those things, that doesn't make that that it's it's so it's so sad because we don't operate like like we could or like we should to, for the betterment of all the people involved and the uh, the situation that they find themselves in. That's too bad. Right. I will mention that the the State Department 
instituted something that is unique in the federal government, and it's something called the dissent channel. And this is a method that officers down the chain of hierarchy can submit a cable to Washington, even against the wishes of their people up above them in the chain to object to a policy. And over the years, the dissent channel has been used. And the, the promise that the department gives you is that you will not be, there will be no retaliation. And by and large, I think that is adhered to, although it's hard to tell sometimes. But over the years, that that dissent channel has been used to bring up some very big and important issues. And I'll just give one that's quite well known, and that's we had an officer named Tex Harris, who was serving in Argentina at the time of the, the coup by the colonels. And all of the human rights violations that you probably have heard about, the the mothers marching in the plaza because their children had disappeared and so forth. Well, Tex Harris had the courage to write a dissent channel cable to say, we should be respecting human rights norms and we should be putting pressure on this government to respect human rights in Argentina. And of course, nobody, his ambassador did not want to approve this cable going out, but it went out because he was sent through the dissent channel. So that is one mechanism that the Foreign Service has in the State Department to express differing views from whatever official guideline is. Uh, another example that happened during, you know, again, these are things that I saw while I was serving, is at the time of Bosnia, a group of younger officers sent in dissent messages about what we were doing in the Balkans. And some of them even retired because they did not believe, they did not agree with US policy at that time. So foreign service officers by and large understand that we reserve all administrations, whether Republican or, or Democrat, we serve the will of the American people as expressed through their political leaders. And we, our job is to carry out those policies. But if one feels strongly enough about an issue, you can express your disagreement through the dissent channel. And then you have to decide, will I just follow the, the ruling, the, the, what I'm told to do as far as policy, or will I resign? And that's always your choice. It's a, it's a shame that that choice can be so stark. It's like either or, either, either you stand up for what you believe and you're the guy, you're the, for lack of a better term, the boots on the ground, you're there watching what's happening and, uh, and you talk about it and you, and you, uh, object to a, a, something that is not right. And then you're forced to either resign or go to the mailroom. That, 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 that really, that's, that's, that's too bad. And I hope, you know, I, I Julie, I hope that you will, uh, this is a fascinating topic. And I don't know if you signed a non-disclosure agreement and, and stuff that you're not able to, to talk about this stuff. But if you could write a book about this, because we're going to talk about your book now uh, and your, your two books that you've written and also you're a publicist. Heck, you could self-publish this. This I think this would be a fascinating story to talk about the Foreign Service and, and uh, it would make a great movie, too. Well, I've thought about writing a professional memoir. But the problem with that is you have to name names, and that's hard. It's hard. It, it, I, I, no, I, w I would advocate that because of the political climate that we find ourselves in, uh, you can't win. And somebody is going to, if, if, if like the last guy that was in office prior to uh, uh, President uh, uh, Biden, um, there are people that would, that that send people death threats over over stuff and so i wouldn't advocate that you do that necessarily but and name names but just the culture of how it all works and and how you know that you guys are doing the best you can but you don't have enough money uh you're you're in some cases run by incompetence because of the way that they appoint uh, ambassadors which they tend to th i don't who is it that thinks that being an ambassador would be is an easy job and would be fun i mean wars can get started over over an ambassador doing something stupid evidently everyone thinks they can be an ambassador and do it well uh, i had a, a colleague who told me she was sitting at a dinner party and the general was there and he said you know when i finish my military career i want to be an ambassador 
And she said, you know, General, when I finish my diplomatic career, I want to be an aircraft carrier commander. <laughs> but just to show everyone thinks they can be an ambassador. They think it's an easy job. It's I, I can't believe that anyone think that that's an easy job because you, not only do you have to, um, you have to understand the culture of where you are and why somebody, another leader or another person would think the way they think which is putting your, the, that's, that's hard to do. Right. It is. So I, I, I really applaud everything that you've done. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Now you've also written a couple of books now that, now that you're out of the, out of the service. And I assume there's a nice pension plan for you uh, when you're, when you're in the service for 33 years. We do have a pension and I'm very grateful for my pension, but it's balanced by the fact that our pay is very limited. It's not, you know, I, didn't become a millionaire being a, a diplomat you don't that doesn't happen so let me let me add, just touch on that and uh and i, I don't want to know and the audience doesn't need to know how much you make you know, personally but just as a general rule um are they they're civil servants so that are they paid do they do they get they are they paid well or would you say they're paid marginally well I would say they're paid like professionals, government professionals. The government, whole government has a ranking system and we're not civil service or in the State Department, domestically there's civil service, but foreign service has its own scale, but it's pegged. So it's roughly equivalent to the military at the same grade. Oh, you're so, kidding me. The military? Yeah. My, my son's in the military. You have got to be kidding me. Uh, no, that's, uh, believe me, our younger officers wonder about this. They start out as a, Foreign Service is grade five or grade four. And they have, like I said, a master's degree. They have languages. They have some experience. And they could be making a lot more in the private sector. But they do it as I did it because they want to serve their country. And this is their skill set. And they want to represent the U.S. overseas. You don't join the Foreign Service for the money. Well, no, but, but there are, I'm sure that there are lots of folks that uh, contemplate serving the country and being in the foreign service, but then they look at it and they go, how can I pay my student loans off if I'm, if this is what I'm going to make and over, you know, and if it's, if it's commensurate with military, I, I can tell you my, my son, he's told me what he makes now, in addition to his pay, he gets, you know, like housing allowances and stuff like that. But, but still, it he'll never get rich. He's going to be in the Air Force for 20. He'll never get rich doing that. He'll never be able to put, you know, a lot of money in the bank being in the military. And if and it seems to me like in the Foreign Service, you guys need to know multiple languages. You need to be able to, to think on your feet. You And you've got a master's degree. That They need to get paid commensurate with their experience and what they bring to the table. But that's just me. I'm sorry. My last job job in the Foreign Service was actually to be what they call a diplomat in residence. And I was based at the University of Texas in Austin. And my job was to go out and to talk to young people about a career in the Foreign Service. And one of the things I said, it was part of my spiel, was you're never going to become rich in the Foreign Service. But you don't have to be rich because when you retire, you have a nice pension and that will carry you through. And that's the truth. Well, that's good. That's good. So it's given you the ability Oh, how do you like this segue? It's given you the ability to be able to become an author and a publisher and to write some books. Tell us about the first book you wrote. Uh, My first book was on the Camino de Santiago, which if you're not familiar with it, is an ancient pilgrimage route that goes from anywhere in the world, but ends up in Santiago de Compostela in northwestern Spain. And it's the Santiago is the place where the apostle St. James is buried. And pilgrims have been traveling this route, this pilgrimage route, um, since 822 or 824, depending on how we believe in, um, which is when they rediscovered the burial spot of the Apostle St. James. So it's a fascinating story, the whole story, and it went out of vogue for a long time, but it's had a recent resurgence of interest. So the year before COVID hit, Um, about 300,000 people made the journey, the pilgrimage, and did it in a way that they get what's called the Compostela, which is the official recognition that they've completed a pilgrimage. 
So now, is that because they walk or is that can they drive it? Can <laughs> I would ask for me, can I drive the thing? It would be better. So the three official ways of doing the Camino are walking, horseback, or on bicycle. So, but let me tell you, you can drive the Camino. You're not going to get a piece of paper saying that you did it the official, but you will get a tremendous amount out of that trip driving it. Um, for me, I had been to Spain many times, but I had never been to that part of northern Spain. And it was an eye opener for me. Um, boy, the cathedrals in Leon and Burgos are magnificent. They are just incredible. And of course, you have Pamplona, uh, the running of the bulls is up along the, it's called the French route, that whole area up there. But you can start your pilgrimage from anywhere in the world. Oh, that's, that's, that's really cool. That's, that's where the French, the, the, the running of the bulls is. In Pamplona. Yeah. yeah, no, no, not, don't want to do that either. Uh, it certainly is not on my bucket list because I'd get skewered, uh, you know, but uh, so that's that's really cool. So you you document uh, the entire trip from beginning to end and and, and encourage people to, to take that route, right? Right. My book is a, a hybrid. It's both a, a memoir of my own trip with stories about what happened to me, but it's also a guidebook. I wrote it for people who are thinking maybe they'd like to do this, but they're not quite sure. What does it involve? What do you need? So I give them, I explain how it happens, what you, what you do, how you arrange it. And then I talk about my own particular experience. So it's, it's both for people who are thinking maybe they're going to walk, want to walk the Camino or travel the Camino. And for those who know they never will, they're just armchair travelers, but would like to know what the experience is like. That would be awesome to uh, go on horseback. I would love to do that. That would be. I just did that this past fall. So my next book will be about riding the Camino. Oh, that's, that's cool. And your second book is, is entitled. It's, my second book is called The Baby with Three Families. That's right. Two Countries and One Promise. It's an international adoption story. That is an, a, a topic that a lot of people need to find more about, is international adoption, how it all works and all that. Right. Well, again, my, my book is unique. I, I look for these niches where, because of my background and experience, I know something that a lot of people don't know, and I want to share that knowledge. I, um, because I worked at embassies, knew a lot about, know a lot about international adoptions. Not that I was in the consular section managing them, but I had to deal with issues relating to adoption. And so what you find if you go to Amazon, for example, and you start searching, you find a lot of books about adoption that are for parents. And you find for children a few, not that many, but a few books, but the characters in the book are animals like a mama bear will adopt a goose or something like that. You don't find any books like mine, which is a children's book. It's for children, but it's about real people and the real process of how one gets adopted, how it happens, who are the people that are involved? Why didn't, you know, why, why did my mother, my biological mother give me up for adoption? A lot of questions that children have. I try to answer in a, kind and factual way in this book it is um being adopted can be as my mother-in-law would have attested can be a lifelong stain on themselves because they don't feel like they were loved that they were given away by their mother and and they don't necessarily look at the circumstances so it would really be helpful for these kids as they grow up that they learn why certain things happen. And if they, if the mother was, especially a third world adoption uh, where the mother had no hope of providing a meaningful life or could even make sure that that child lived. Um, and would, and so it's the ultimate act of love to give a child like that up. Is that right? That I believe that's true. Yes. I give all credit to the biological mothers who allow their children to be adopted. Uh, I dedicate my book in part to them. And um, uh, one little illustration, your, what your comments are making me think, there's one page where the biological mother is thinking, what can I do? What should I do? And she's got this vision in her head. And of course, this is for children. So I'm trying to 
pictured for children. So there's like a hamburger up there and a toy and things that children would want. You know, and she's thinking, I won't be able to afford any of these things for my child if I keep my child. And I insisted we put a school there too because schooling is so important. But anyway, the point is from a child's point of view, if I weren't adopted, I wouldn't have had any of these things because my mother couldn't have given them to me. You know, one thing that uh, I just found out about recently, I was on YouTube, I learned so much. And uh, apparently in China, uh, when there are twins born, twin girls specifically, and a lot of times they're given up for adoption, but they're not giving up, given up as sisters. They're given up individually. And is that happen? Does that happen in a lot of adoptions? Because and the way that they know that is that there was a, a little girl in the Midwest and a little girl from my neck of the woods up in Washington that were identical twins, and they they never had met each other, and they were from two completely different backgrounds. Their parents who did the adoption nobody told them that there was a twin, and so somehow. Uh, they they uh, found out about each other, and uh, now now that they've they've been reunited as twins and and stuff. But does that happen in the adoption world, or is it, is it specific to just China, or is that a problem all over? Is that twin girls or twin people are having they have a problem placing? I, every country is unique, and every country controls its adoption rules. So you have some countries that are really good and careful about the children in their country and who they offer up for adoption and how they control the, the situation. Other countries, the situation is horrible. And I will talk about one that I served in, which is Guatemala. And this is many years ago, so the situation may have improved, but there were really horrible things going on in Guatemala at that time. Children were being literally stolen out of hospitals and then sold to adoptive parents. Um, women were being paid to have a baby, particularly so the baby would then be put up for adoption. So lawyers were involved in these sales of babies. So some countries, bad things happen in, for, in regards to adoptions. Other countries, and I would say I adopted my own son from Colombia, they really control the situation. So you have confidence the child you adopted, the parent or mother or the parents, wanted to give the child up for adoption and the government has carefully scrutinized the adoptive parents and approved them for the adoption. So I can't, you know, I don't know, I didn't adopt from China, I don't know China, but every country decides what to do. What I can say is that um, many people, and I agree with this, tell adoptive parents that adoption should not be secret. Your child should know from the very beginning that they were adopted. And that was part of the reason for my book, so that parents have something, a book they can read to their children to explain adoption and what it's like and why it happened and so forth. Uh, you know, there is so much about the world that that sitting here in our in our little place in uh, in America that we don't we just we just don't get it <laughs> and i i applaud you because you're able to talk about the world in a real meaningful way and are able to do some really extraordinary things and i want to thank you for being on the show today i've i've learned a ton and i know that there are some people that have this have as well and uh if somebody wants to work with you as a publicist how do they get a, a hold of you? Either your publicist is Bayou City Press. And by the way, I got to ask you also, the gentleman whose name was Tex, he wasn't from Texas, was he? Um, I think he probably was, yes. He's from Texas, but know, you know. He's quite famous in the Foreign Service um, because he became president of the American Foreign Service Association. Uh, I'm not a publicist. I'm a publisher. Okay, so, publisher. Yeah, sorry. sorry to be clear. So I get to look at other people's pre-publication manuscripts and decide if I would like to publish them. So this is my post-diplomat career, and I love it. Somebody wants to contact you. How do they do it? Julie at BayouCityPress.com. Or they can go to my website and just check it out, which is BayouCityPress.com. My author website is julieconnorauthor.com. 
Julie, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show today. Sadly, I have to run. I've got more things to do, more interview to, to more interviews to set up and to, and to work with. But I'll be in touch, and we'll and we'll get together soon. Okay. Thank you, Kevin, and to and your thank eye. you. And so, stay right here where you are. I'll be. I got to do this, and I'll be right back. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great, positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other, because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.